What would it look like if we had financial infrastructure that loved black and brown people? Welcome to Economics for Emancipation, a podcast about how we can move towards justice by transforming our relationships to each other, to our environment, and to the systems and structures that make our world go round. Each episode in this series features two guests in conversation with each other about the daily struggles, strategic considerations, and huge opportunities that come with the work of building a better world for all of us, with justice as our North Star. I am your host, Amethyst Carey, and I'm here to learn and listen with you. I'll be sharing context, definitions, and some of my reflections on the key themes raised by our brilliant guests. Themes like shared governance and economic democracy. And if you don't know what these terms mean, you're in the right place. We're here to figure them out together. Here's a few ways you can engage with us while listening. If you like what you hear in this episode, please rate us five stars on whatever platform you're using to listen and leave a review. Let us know what you think on Instagram and Twitter by using the tag, hashtag E4EPod, and that is four like the number. If social media isn't for you, or if you're just tired of it like me, you can share your thoughts by sending an email to podcast at economicdemocracy.us. And as always, all of this information and details about today's featured interviewees can be found in our show notes. Okay, let's get into it. I could not think of a better duo to kick off the first episode of this podcast than the two incredible women I'm about to introduce. Jessica Norwood is a Southerner, a Black woman, and the proud founder of The Runway Project. To understand what they do at The Runway Project, you have to know a little bit about the challenge of starting a business, and especially the need for early-stage investors who believe in your idea and are willing to lend or invest money to help you get started. For wealthier or well-connected entrepreneurs, that seed funding might come from personal networks. But for people who don't have access to venture capitalists or rich uncles, for folks in debt or folks facing discrimination from historically racist lending institutions, that lack of seed capital can be an insurmountable obstacle to getting a business off the ground. That's where the Runway Project comes in. They're working to solve the friends and family seed funding gap for African-American entrepreneurs and to expand opportunities for Black folks to build wealth in our communities. Jessica is joined by Nia Evans, director of the Boston Ujima Project. Nia is a first-generation American whose parents are originally from Bermuda and St. Kitts. She's from California, but is now living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The Boston Ujima Project, or Ujima for short, is organizing neighbors, workers, business owners, and investors to create a community-controlled economy in greater Boston. Ujima engages in arts and cultural organizing and provides support and funding for social enterprises and cooperatives owned by people of color. This funding comes from Ujima's democratically controlled loan fund, the first of its kind in the U.S., in which community members get to nominate and vote on which businesses they want to invest in. In this episode, you'll hear Jessica and Nia discuss the significance of the racial wealth gap in the context of their work, celebrate Black resiliency and the inherent value of Black people, and finally, uplift what role love can play in our relationship to the economy and to each other. Nia kicks off the conversation with a question about the why behind Jessica's work with The Runway Project. Hi, 
how would you define the problem you're motivated to address or a key question that guides your work? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good question. Like I think coming from the South and really looking at um, the ways that we have had such deep racial terror, we've had um, such layers of, of just inequity in this country. And one way that it really manifests is in this term that we call the racial wealth gap. And wealth is really education, they think of as a wealth building pathway, right? Home ownership is a wealth building pathway because home ownership will increase the value or equity you have. Education will give you a larger income. And so these are the things that we talk about when we're talking about wealth. And one of the things that increases wealth is actually entrepreneurship. Owning a business actually increases your personal wealth, but it also creates jobs available in that community. It also puts buildings back into usage in those communities and stabilizes that community in ways where we just think are just is a tremendous get, a tremendous effort. But overwhelmingly, when we look at all the racial inequality that's happened, the ability to be that kind of business owner and be a black person or person of color in this country, it gets hampered. And it's so against what it is, is sort of this American ethos, this idea that business ownership and sort of self-made is the way to do things. This is actually, you know, a, a huge covenant of America that really gets broken when we're talking about people of color and particularly black entrepreneurs. And we've seen multiple places, multiple times where black communities really do build businesses. They really are, you know, putting themselves out there only to see this terror happen where the places are burned to the ground. Uh, we think about Wall Street in Tulsa, or we think about Durham, or we think about all these ways where systematically infrastructure gets eroded on this pursuing wealth. And so this gap gets exacerbated. It gets exacerbated with redlining, all of these things. But we think that entrepreneurship is a strong position to help push back and to create a different paradigm around that. And I think broadly... If I was to say it, I, I would say I'm, I am and Runway is so devoted to black resiliency. And I think resiliency comes from when we do business in a holistic and responsible way. Um, when we put out products that are helpful to our communities, when we have terms and governance and strategies that empower and uplift the innovation and the sacredness and the creator in all of us, I think that that is possible. And um, I think that that in turn makes resiliency. I don't think it's just wealth by itself. I think it is a set of relationships that have to be moving properly and an expansive network that together creates resiliency and wealth is a part of that equation. So that's that's how I think of it. All right, sis. And now I want to pose the question to you. So how would you define the problem that you're motivated to address? Sure. Thank you, Jessica. So I would say a key thread throughout my work and particularly the work that I do at and with Ujima, there are three kind of things that I'm thinking of broadly. So one is power. The second is value. And the third is safety. When I think about power, and I, and I should say, and I think this is probably the case for you as well, although I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, but you said Black resiliency. 
And I'm, I'm picking up on that just because I'm going to talk about Black people too, but in me speaking about Black people, that's not me excluding anyone else. And so just seeing how Black communities in this country generally bear the brunt of every uh, social ill that we can think of, and we're definitely seeing that with the pandemic right now, it makes sense that there would be a keen attention to what's happening with, with Black communities in America and, and being of those communities ourselves, that we would we would not see ourselves as a part from that. Um, so even though you're sitting in Mobile, Alabama, uh, you have a home, you have flowers behind you, you look great, your hair looks great, you have a hat, you know, I have some dishes behind me and some books and a painting. I don't I don't feel apart from black people in our country who don't have um, such. Uh, so I think recognizing that it could easily be one of us. And so when I think about power and value and safety, I would say what what drives me and what, and what drives the work is properly valuing Black people. So properly um, valuing our humanity, properly valuing our personhood, because I can only believe that it is a lack of that value that leads to the realities that we live. It is it is a, a lack of respect and acknowledgement just of our of our humanity at base. And for me, what I think about is that we black people, that we understand our humanity and that we understand our inherent value. And that we understand that our value is not determined by anybody else, individually and collectively. Not only do we have inherent value as people, there is no measurement that anyone can apply to us to assess on our behalf or even with our with our permission, because I would say our permission in that in those instances would be misguided. But that in us determining that for ourselves, that that we are clear about what we are using to value ourselves, that we are not valuing ourselves purely based on how much we are producing for a lifeless entity, how much we're able to purchase for ourselves or for others, you know, how much we're able to get other people to purchase um, for us or how, you know, what type of wage or salary we're able to mm-hmm. command. And so that's just something that I think about a lot. It's just really understanding at core that we are valuable and then moving from there. And when I think about moving from there, as I said, I think about power. One of the features that's central to Ujima, for example, is the power to determine what gets built, what gets planned, um, what gets carried out in our communities, what receives resources. And so I think about that decision-making power, um, self-determination, not exclusively for Black people, but it is our communities that I think about. And so I think about how we have the expertise, we have the capacity, that's not at question. The situations that we find ourselves in today is a, is a result of, I would say, of intentionally broken covenants um, and not accidentally broken covenants. So when you talk about Tulsa, that is an intentional act of destruction of a community that was created by Black people. And Tulsa was not an isolated incident. We know that there were incidents like that all across the country. And 
So that leads me to safety. There is the very real reality that many communities in this, co- in this country are still struggling how to live with each other and how to respect each other and how to not have their own value be determined by the devaluing of another community. So then that puts us in precarious positions. Again, just, just um, referencing Tosa. If I were to put it in a problem format, the problem would be attempts to disempower, because I, w- I really want to make sure I'm laying culpability where it lies as well. So, so often when we're talking about problems with Black communities, the culpability is always with us. Um, usually we don't know how to do something and we need to be taught something. Our skills need to be built up. We don't know the rules. We're not understanding the game quite right. And so for me, it's important that we lay culpability where it is, which is we have actors who are actively setting out to disempower us, working to actively devalue our contributions, our bodies, our persons, and our communities, actively working to terrorize us, mm-hmm. uh, for lack of a better term. So, so those would be the problems that I would say we're addressing. And, and the questions would be, I think, collectively, you know, how do we work together to excavate? the power that we know is there, the value that we know is there, and how do, we, how do we work together so that we all feel safe? Yeah. <clears throat> so good. So good, Nia. Like, ooh, all right. Um, your, three, your three areas that you talked about, this value, power, and safety. Value, power, and safety, I think, really intersect so beautifully to when I when I talk about resiliency, right? Because that is a part of what is the fabric or the makeup, the DNA of resiliency is this value, power, and safety. When you started off and you said, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, right? And there was a moment where you stopped to be really delicate and thoughtful about the naming of when we say black, what does that mean or what does not, what doesn't that mean, right? And I just wanted to like land that particular plane for a second because there are people who might be listening to this and think that there is an exclusionary tone to when we say black. And I get this often and I imagine just in this in the delicateness of the way that you pursue that you've heard this before. And so I just wanted to just kind of like respond to that piece and you know maybe that sparks something else. But um I I wanted to say why I say black And what it really means to me when I'm saying that, because you and I have been on a conference circuit or two before. And so we know each other. We're friends. And I would, Nia, I would be at a conference. And this is this is honestly what happened. I'd be at a conference and. I would sit there on a main stage, hundreds and hundreds of people in the room. And I would say the word, the phrase racial wealth gap. I would say it, and people would give me that very sort of soft little clap, you know, that that, that doesn't really have a sound to it. It's just like skin just pressing up, and, and it was a pathetic little clap for what they heard, because 
what I have to conjure up and really remember is all of the trauma and terror and anguish that happens inside of that word, inside of that frame. Like, it's not just racial wealth gap. No, it's Tulsa. It's, it is Durham. It is Black Chicago. It is what people call this great migration, which is really, you know, leaving racial terror of the South. It is Jim Crow. It is all of these things systematically, generation after generation layering on. And I have to have the ability to sit inside of that and say that in three words. And then afterwards, people come to me and they tell me about how they'd like to make an investment in that. As if, A, it is, you know, my deepest desire and hope that what we're getting here is your willingness to maybe make, maybe make an investment, right? After I have really, in the most professional possible way that I knew how, poured my heart and soul out on those stages to say that. And the response back to me is not at the same level of really understanding what I just said, what that really meant, and what it means to be in relationship with me. And I think of this as um, there is a saying, the canary in the coal mine, right? And I know for a fact that when you address the issues related to black people in this country, when I can get that right, it works for everyone else. I love to quote Brian Stevenson from Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, where he says, you must become proximate to an issue. That means that you've got to understand intimately what that issue is. And I think this speaks so well to your place of understanding value and understanding power, right? Because what he's saying and being proximate to an issue or what I'm saying when people give me the soft clap afterwards is that there is a devaluation inside of this, right? That there is an idea that, um, as you said so beautifully, that there's an expectation that the people who have had these experiences, that they did something to cause that, that in some way that they were... Um, less than, responsible, um, should be held accountable, and that they are the wrong actors inside of the frame. And I'm not here to ascribe who's right and who's wrong. I think it's obvious who, who does and what does and how it happens. But what I'm saying is that there's a generational thing. It's not just such a, such a, sm a small enough thing that you can say, you know, that person over there did the thing. No, it's a pervasive system that constantly grinds against people and um, and that is not their fault. And these ideas of only thinking financial literacy or only thinking that, you know, education or buy a house will change that um, is, is grossly, I think, wrong. And so saying black reframes and puts that point for me back into the conversation. And I have so many people, Nia, who have said to me, 
don't don't say that or it excludes other people we're we're talking you know i don't mean it from a place of exclusion what we mean it from is a place of calling out the reality and saying if you want to make a solution you've got to be proximate to the historical and relational context of what that issue is you don't get to say racial wealth gap and then all of a sudden forget race like you can't do that you can't name that and then back away from it and so um i just appreciate you teasing that out and saying that part because I wanted to just make sure that for whomever is listening that we landed the plane on that and that we talked about why it is that I get proximate to the issue. Why it is that I think that only a real solution that gets proximate to the issue can be actually transformative. You can make up lots of things, but if it does not honor the history, the place, the value, the people, and if it doesn't see people as pure assets, not not liabilities, not liabilities. These are our assets that the community where I come from, even in their, you know, knowing and unknowing, are the stewards and and deeply understand their life and where they want it to go. And our job becomes making sure that the pathways of that is clear. I'm not articulating the message. I'm clearing the pathway so that what it is they're saying really gets heard. And I think that that is rooted so deeply in this idea of value and power because in the investment and wealth space and economic space, these are the things that get manipulated very often. It's like, well, how do we create this um, democratic um, economy when you don't even value the people who are next to you? So, you know, so, so we have these lofty visions of things, but we have to get very proximate to the issue that's actually stopping us from getting to the world that we say that we want. taking notes. Jessica's story about the soft clap was so deeply relatable and familiar, I'm sure, to those of us who are engaged in racial equity work. I also really appreciated how Jessica and Nia journeyed through history to answer the question, what is the problem you're motivated to address? Their answers are informed by over 400 years of racism and racial terror against Black people and the ways that that has specifically manifested in our economic system and in our cultural values and beliefs. They may be focused in on particular interventions, but it's with a lens that's shaped by history and knowledge of the root of the issue. I first learned about Ujima myself as someone who was newly returned to Boston. I was really drawn to Ujima's community assembly process which brings residents together to discuss and vote on local issues. And they did this through a process that valued and centered the voices of its black and brown working class members, while making space for everyone who was present at the event to participate. That was something I hadn't experienced before, and I think that that welcoming culture is a large part of what makes Ujima so powerful. In the next clip, Jessica and Nia explore the related idea of governance. Simply put, Governance is how any group of people make decisions together and how they decide who gets to participate in the decision-making itself. Most of the time, people talk about the way countries or whole societies are governed, but governance also exists in our workplaces and in our schools. 
Even the act of deciding how to spend the afternoon with your friends is an informal but valuable practice of governance. Our guests return to the idea of governance throughout this podcast series, and we hope that the different perspectives that they bring help you, our listeners, to develop your own ideas about what forms of governance we need to build a better future. What is governance to you? And how is it different than government? Because I think that they get interlocked a little bit. And so tease it out for us. What, yeah. what does governance mean for you? And I, I appreciate that, Jessica. And there is a vast separation now between governance and government. And I think that that's mostly because we would, we would look at many governments in our country um, and we would say they don't actually represent us. There are not many governments, and I'm talking federal, state, and local in our country that are, that are actually legitimate um, for many communities. I think ideally that changes. And one of the, the things that I um, appreciate about Ujima is we are practicing governance. So we're practicing collective governance. Um, at some point, the gap between governance and government should decrease such that our collective governance is government. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, I think, I think we're a little too accepting, mm-hmm. um, of governments that are not representative of our communities. And we're a little too accepting of, um, governments that don't have real legitimacy. And we've kind of seeded the field. And as long as we have a structure that formally sets the parameters within which we live, if we seed that to people that we feel are, are illegitimate, there's certain types of work that we guarantee ourselves into perpetuity because we place ourselves and we are in the position where we continue to battle against people that we have empowered because we have ceded that ground to, uh, to, to make, to make life less safe for us. And so Mm. I think what's ideal is, ultimately there's no there's no gap so then that our work is more about actually practicing what we know and then refining those practices mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and less about that struggle that's right yeah i i, I often thank you for that nia because i often say for a runway project um we are a practice not a product So for me, the difference between governance and government is governance can happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere. And I often tell my entrepreneurs, and and I have this, it happens a lot. I'm really fortunate to work with some of the most cutting edge, brilliant thinkers and entrepreneurs out there, period. And often they are at the place where they're designing their company and they're determining which structure should the company be. And what gets tripped up is what they're trying to solve for is governance. So it's not the structure that shifted, but what you laid inside of that structure that told you how we, not I, but how we make a decision. Runway operates on a governance model where we believe that we are leaderful and there's a shared distribution of of power and relationship inside of that. But you can add these features 
to your corporation or your nonprofit. And inside of that, I think it creates more practice. That's what we just said, practice for people so that inevitably our governments, we believe, will actually mimic how we move and how we groove in the world. There are folks who do a beautiful job in participatory governance things where they look at the city or county's budget and do design charrettes around how that money should be spent. There are art artists and art creative spaces where the government may open up pools of art funds and have the community to determine how those funds are used. Uh, but ultimately what we're saying is, is that all resources right? So this is economy, all resources that we have, that there should be the people who are actually manufacturing, stewarding, creating should be a part of determining or should be determining, not a part of, should be determining, point blank, what that means for their own lives and for the communities and the people that they support. And why I think it differs from government is you don't have to wait for government to happen to have good governance. You can employ those things and these strategies right now. Popping back in real quick with a direct ask to you, our listeners, we want to know, how are you practicing governance in your daily life? What are the ways that you make decisions with other people? And how does cooperative leadership show up in your home, workplace, or other spaces? Send us your stories, your thoughts, your responses at podcast at economicdemocracy.us. In this final segment, Nia and Jessica make a powerful connection between love and finance. Nia also mentions economic democracy, but we're going to hold off on defining it right here because that will be the focus of our next episode. I think this is probably maybe two, three weeks ago. I can't remember now, but you were in a, a webinar and I really love that you said this and that, and that this is a question that you've been putting out to people, which is you've, you've been asking people, what would it look like to have finance that loves black people and black communities? So can you just kind of talk about that phrase more and what that looks like for you and, and what cultural shifts need to happen for us to achieve? Mm -hmm this vision. So you said finance that loves Black people and Black communities. I did say it. Thank you for that. And the question for me really came from a sister friend of mine who is a culture worker, beautiful Anasa Troutman, who does incredible work in Memphis. And we were having a conversation about Black capital, capital in the South in particular. And she, she said to me, have I ever thought about, and maybe I'm paraphrasing it, but, but have I ever thought about what I would be like if I lived outside of the frame of patriarchy and white supremacy? That was the actual question. What, who would I be if I lived outside of the frame of patriarchy and white supremacy? And I, that question sat with me. And not only did it sit with me, but it sat with everybody there. Um, it sat with white women, it sat with black women, it sat with men, it sat with everybody. Because it is essentially the question all of us have to grapple with. Like, who would we be if we were not inside of that frame of white supremacy um, and patriarchy? And that question said, okay, to Jessica, what would the financial infrastructure look like? 
If it loved black and brown people, if, what would it be doing? What would it look like? How would we be engaging that? And the invitation is for a radical departure from where we are. This is where I'm really heading with this is that um, we have been for too long very incremental about what we think is possible inside of this particular system. And this calibration, this question is to say, you ain't been loved right. So what would it mean to be loved right? And it, it requires that we really start to think about what we would really want. Who would we really be? You know, outside of that oppression, outside of that systemic constant, like what would we really be? And does the design, does the infrastructure match that? And so that was really the invitation of the question. And I love because it, it, it makes us look at the cultural pieces, the things that we have inherited, um, but it also, uh, the things that we have learned, the attitudes, our behaviors, and our beliefs of how something is, it puts that into complete sure. swing. It's like, okay, wait a minute. You mean I ain't been loved right? And, and I haven't been showing up fully as myself, so how do we get this level of equity if I haven't even been invited to show up as myself? And that I had, don't even fully know myself to show up yet. So I've got to slow down and do repair work. There is a moment where I've got to look at this fracture of relationship. To your point, the value, the power, the safety. I've got to look at that and I've got to repair these things. I've got to make it right with myself, but I've got to make it right with the institution. It's got to become right with the system. It's got to become in right relationship to that. And so when I asked that question, you said something to me that just kind of like kind of took my breath away. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know how you get that mm-hmm, that knowing nod where you're just like, yup. And so you talked about taking that thought further. So it's not just what would it look like, but how does that get socialized? How does that land for people? We say these big terms like democracy and economic democracy but there's a particular way that you were talking about that it matters how people hold that. I think that's a cultural conversation in that. Like, it's one thing to just sort of say it, and then it's another thing to think about what does that even mean and feel and look like. Would you give us some language that just takes us on home that talks about how that lands and feels for people from a cultural perspective? Yeah, thank you so much, Jessica. And I, I so appreciate your elaboration because a statement that I made was we can't right now easily access a conversation about economic democracy. Um, we can access conversations about capitalism pretty easily. We can now more easily access conversations about socialism. We can't yet access a conversation about um, like easily about economic democracy. And so we're talking right now a lot about a, a new normal. And so part of Ujima's work um, since, since its uh, inception has been to co-create a new normal with each other. And so part of that is thinking about how all of the different ways we communicate with each other. So that's verbally, that's text, uh, that's art, um, that's how we are in relationship with each other, that's movement, how all of those things um, communicate our ideal world. When we think about kind of effective communication, I do believe what, what's at base of that effective communication is it taps into what people want. 
And the reason why I love that you you talk about being loved correctly is because I do believe we all want to be loved. And so I, I do believe when we, you know, are seeking out resources that are that are not just necessities, when we're when we're seeking out relationships, when we're seeking out ways of being, I think they ultimately go to us trying to find love and trying to be loved Mm -hmm. the way we want to be loved. Mm -hmm. And so our job then is to say, here are ways that we think that you can be loved that, and, and again, just to kind of take it full circle, that doesn't devalue other people, that doesn't rob someone else, that doesn't have a scarcity mindset, that has underneath it mutual being and mutual mutual health. And mm-hmm. so being able to connect economic democracy to love, I think mm-hmm. it's important. And so being, mm-hmm. being able to uh, show people how if we transact with each other differently, if we do business differently, if we support each other and resource each other differently, we will be loving correctly and mm-hmm. we will be loved rightly or the, or the way that um, that we want to be loved. Mm-hmm. And then the the final thing that I want to say is the the most important way this shows up is is in our in-person interactions with each mm-hmm. other. If in my interaction, you experience an invitation to explore and to question and to reflect with me, then I think a conversation about economic democracy is much more accessible than if uh, in your interaction with me, I'm beating you over the head with an idea. You know, I've told you what you need. Um, I've told you what you don't know. Um, and so for me, that's key is that if we're, if we're really saying we need to be in different relationship with each other, that we actually are as we are having conversations about economic democracy and that that relationship is as partners, um, as co-equals, no matter who we are. So that's bringing intersectionality into the picture. And again, it's an invitation. And you said earlier, knowing and unknowing. So it's understanding that we're we're all bringing knowing and unknowing um, into this conversation and we're exploring and we're seeking and we're reflecting together. And, and then I think that that is what makes the conversation accessible. Mm, so right. So good. I love that we ended on the note of love and I hope we get a chance, Nia Evans, to come back and talk about economic democracy and love. Um, because I think that people think it's an esoteric kind of idea that does not have a founding or relationship to, you know, an economy. But to be loved well, to be loved right, and to be able to self-determine what love is and to have the wherewithal and the ability to talk about that is a very powerful thing. It's a very affirming, value-centered thing. And a lot of folk don't imagine that we ought to be loved, and even ourselves sometimes. So I love that we ended there. conversation about the order of these episodes and I'm so so glad that we decided to start with this one. I'm really sitting with the question of what it looks like to be loved correctly. It's a big question uh, but Jessica and Nia 
also provides some scaffolding for us to think it through. I'm thinking about the inherent value that we all possess, the inherent value that Black people possess outside of what we produce. And I think from there, we're able to think about what does it look like to be loved correctly systemically in a system, to have an economy that loves us, to have a relationship with the natural world around us that is reciprocally loving um, in right relationship, which is something that Jessica mentions and that will also come up in later episodes. I'm also sitting with what's possible if we get proximate, if we really push ourselves to acknowledge the truth of what's happened in this country and globally as it relates to Black people. How could getting proximate, taking the time to sit with the discomfort that we feel, but not getting stuck there, acknowledging our racist history and letting it inform the work that we're doing instead of hiding from it, how could that help us close the racial wealth gap? How would that radically change our perception of the problem that we have? And the last thing that I'm thinking about is possibility and what love makes possible. And I mean that both in the very fluffy, floaty, lovely way <laughs> and, and also in the ways that love is work um, and love is commitment to show up and actually value folks, to show up and value their experience as much as I value whatever I think is right. Who does that culture of love bring into a room or into a conversation who wasn't there before? And what does that make possible? I hope that folks are carrying the challenge that we've talked about and also that spirit of possibility into the ways that you listen to the rest of this series, but also into the way that you are approaching whatever work it is that you're trying to do. Economics for Emancipation is a project of the Center for Economic Democracy. This podcast is hosted by me, Amethyst Carey, and produced and edited by Libby Cohn with support from Liren Ma. Our sound is mixed by Michael Garth. This podcast features music from Masterpiece, who you can find linked in our show notes. The guests in this series are board members or fellows at the Center for Economic Democracy. To learn more about our work, visit us at www.economicdemocracy.us. And to tune into conversation about this podcast, hop on Twitter or Instagram with the tag, hashtag E4EPod, and that is four like the number four.